0: So, good evening, sir. Good evening, everybody who's watching us all. Today with uh, me, I have Mr. Prashanto Roy, sir, who's a technical uh, speaker, A uh, term used as tech speaker for various print media houses and, you know, other uh, uh, publishing houses, uh, the likes of uh, digital media as well, like BBC and, you know, al Jazeera, that I read on the internet and other than India Today and other magazines that I have read about you, sir. The first time I came to know about you in 2019 when I read your article in India Today magazine, sir. And ever since then that, I have always kept that uh, magazine with me. This is the November 18th uh, edition of 2019, in which you said, you know, uh, data is the new oil or weaponizing uh, data. So, so, before starting, I just uh, wanted to ask if you could uh, please uh, tell us something about yourself and how you uh, grew interested to Uh, speak and become an expertise on uh, uh, this data thing because data is the next, uh, uh, I mean, data is the next future of everything.
1: Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Mang. delighted to be on your show and, uh, you know, uh, really, I mean, this is a subject close to my heart. So, you know, my background is really, I spent the first 20 years of my life as a journalist, as uh, somebody in charge of a publishing house, uh, which had a lot of technology publications, so uh, that was cyber media, and we had publications like PCQuest and DataQuest and all of that. Uh, so before that, I mean, if I go back to my school and college, I used to do a fair bit of technology writing and uh, including in professional in publications and in some magazines, newspapers and so on. So when I left college, I pretty much smoothly got into writing, journalism and very quickly joined this organization. Uh, So that was about 20 years. And then actually, I moved on to a slightly different role in terms of my day job, uh, which was I moved into public policy, but continued with my engagement with technology. So while I still work in that space in public policy, looking at data policy issues, digital policy issues and so on. What I also do is I I write on technology areas. I write and speak on some of these areas related to public policy around technology. And the third area of interest for me is green and green tech is something that I've been working on a little bit. My own home is the first certified green home in the country and so on. So that's a kind of background to uh, how I got here and what I do and what I'm interested in. Yes, sir. Uh, Your
0: subject of, and your house, the greenhouse country's first house and five-star accredited greenhouse, you know, that's a subject of great interest to all the environmentalists around the world. I wanted to come to that, right? But before that, I wanted to show my users the article that I have, you know, weapon, weaponizing data, the new oil. Sir, so why do you say that uh, data is the new
1: oil? So, you know, I think this term has been used a lot for uh, data of late. And uh, I think in the last few years, we've been using this, hearing this thing continuously about the value of data. So like oil data flows, like oil, it's extremely valuable. There are, however, quite a few differences because of which data is possibly more valuable than oil ever was because oil is ephemeral, it's transient. You use it up and it's over and we have limited finite quantities of oil. Data is pretty much infinite because you, know, you have enormous and you have growing, rising volumes of data from billions of devices and sensors, which are going to be coming. That data is more and more valuable. And when you use it like oil, it doesn't sort of get consumed and finished, right? The data still is there, you can reuse it, and then you can add value to it. You can derive more and more stuff from it. So for example, you may have sensors which sense people movement or traffic movement, that's just raw data. But now you can do a lot more with it. Or you have, say, Uber, or a taxi service like that, and an app aggregator service like that, which takes a lot of data from where the trips are, where people are mostly picking up cars from, where they're going to, what is the average length of a trip, etc. So that's raw data. But somebody else, let's say a competitor or somebody who's able to access that, or even some other service, you know, which wants to look at, let's say, COVID patients or COVID relief or food delivery services or whatever is able to really is going to be able to mine that data and it would be a gold mine. So that data then becomes really valuable. So even though this comparison started with oil, we find actually data can be far more valuable than oil, especially because you can add value to it. You can do far more with it than you ever started out with and it doesn't get consumed. It becomes more and more valuable. And that's, I think, why Uh, You know, the article you showed, we spoke about weaponizing, Uh, the fact is countries are uh, becoming very interested in um, the value of data, uh, whether data is a sovereign asset or not. And that's something India has been particularly interested in. So weaponizing in the sense, you know, the value of data is so much that you can do a lot of stuff with it and you can even weaponize it and you being it could be any third party which can get data data which has leaked from a database and you can combine it with multiple data sources and you can actually weaponize it and use it to do harm or you can use it to do good. So it's a wide range of things you can do with data and it's probably the most valuable resource we have today now. Sir,
0: the question that I wanted to ask with it was how we are going to weaponize it and that you have answered it very well, right? And you know, they have just generated a new resource out of nowhere and uh, the algorithm for social media that i have been studying—it like works on more content creation you know even if i was studying the algorithm of various, various social media and says you know if there is more and more content creation and and content is being created every day if people want to survive right sir? but i wanted to uh, the first time everybody got to know about how big this data problem is uh, by the cambridge analytics Picasso, that happens, sir. Cambridge uh, Analytical. Picasso, that happens, sir. You know, but but the uh, but the common man really doesn't know what happens. if you could just shed a light into the uh, two things, sir. One is the uh, Cambridge analytics for the viewers to just know how big the problem is, and the second thing was sir, uh, how this Italian software that you have been talking about, you know, gets into the phone because people still do not believe, right? See how this software gets into your phone and can hack your personal life and you know
1: uh, put you at a risk, sir. So, you know, the Cambridge Analytica thing, and I think there will be probably many examples of this, but that is one high profile one which actually came out and it was investigated and it was tracked down uh, where essentially a third party application sitting on Facebook uh, was able to gather information which is derived from simple surveys uh, and matching that with information that Facebook had, uh, you know, and simple surveys could be, for example, you know, just a two-line survey, okay, what kind of food do you like, etc. Then political beliefs, okay, do you like this or this? Okay, all this together, when you aggregate, you begin to profile people. And when you profile people and add it to their actual personal information, that becomes pretty valuable kind of information. On top of that, if you write the requirement or the ability to uh, make outcomes happen, okay, now, for example, Brexit. Okay. Uh, and this was an actual example there that, you know, if you wanted to make people believe that Brexit is a good thing, you could start putting leading kind of things out there, you know, leading kind of questions uh, out here. Or similarly, if you were to look at, let's say, you wanted to put in either, you know, you wanted to wanted people to either vote for a political party, uh, you start by putting leading questions out there, or you start by putting, for example, leading images out there. And you say that, by the way, this image was that of some violence, which happened when the other political party was actually in power. And, you know, what do you think about this kind of thing? Is it good or bad? Okay, now that's just a question, but you do enough of these and it begins to plant a seed of thought in the mind of the person who's doing it. And remember, you can do it in massive scale And you can also target it because by now you've begun to profile that person. You've begun to figure out which people can be swayed uh, in what direction. Okay, so that is something like if you, there was a movie called Inception and that movie, uh, a very similar idea, but a very future science fiction kind of thing was, you know, a futuristic science fiction seed of thought was put in that can you actually plant a seed of thought in somebody? And this is what we don't have to go that far in the future, because with this kind of a thing, what we saw happening, you could actually do that. So supposing you want to make somebody buy a stock, uh, you know, and tomorrow, you know, you're going to short it or whatever. And if you're able to gradually make inch people into doing that, or inch people into voting for a particular party, whether it is the Republican Party around Trump, or to vote for an outlier you know, an outcome like Brexit. The idea is by making, doing these little tweaks and things, you can actually push people to go in a certain direction without forcing them. Okay, you just plant the seed of thought. That is extremely powerful. That's a very, very powerful kind of uh, ability to be able to do that. And today you can do that with the whole digital ecosystem by putting a mass of information, which we've seen in WhatsApp also, you know, people get very easily swayed by WhatsApp rumors. Now combine that ability of sharing targeted WhatsApp rumors with targeting and profiling of the people and figuring out which people forward what kind of messages. Now you know when you want to send a certain kind of message and amplify it, whom to target in that list. That is the kind of thing which was very worrying. And that is why so many governments got really worried because elections could be gamed. Which means that you know you could actually go in, and it's a democ- uh, it's a democracy. There's a voting process and all of that, but you could actually swing people into certain directions in massive ways, which would be absolutely seen as unfair in a way to do it. So that is kind of a summary of why that thing was really so big. So this.
0: Uh... Digital ecosystem that you spoke about you know and how we manipulate or plant an idea into somebody's head, this was actually done by mentalists in circuses so if you know if I've seen a, a mentalist right I spoke about it in one of my, one of my videos that what happens is when a mentalist comes to you know the stage he asks somebody to choose a number right and he's like, uh, can you choose a number and most of the people will always choose uh, seven or eight, and that's you know on based on the movement of his hands or or subconsciously he's planted those ideas somewhere on the way right you know maybe with the uh, direction of his hand you know he just plants that you know in the eight and you know subconsciously they pick it so i think that's what the uh, artificial intelligence is now doing that you have spoken about right and you know uh sir uh one thing i wanted to ask now that you are speaking and uh, opening up our eyes to the uh, great problem is you know uh because when you spoke you also said you know how we can uh target certain number of people and WhatsApp messages that go around without even so there's a mob that's happening and that's happened right and even in the Muzaffar Nagar right? Uh, videos of uh, uh, even now videos from our, our neighboring countries were uh, you know uh, circulated with the false claim that that's happening at our place and you know that's how the crowd falls for it without verifying and Facebook is doing little to curb that right so sir wanted to ask you uh, the problem with the draft privacy bill and you know uh, because the draft privacy bill has been you know uh, drafted uh, so you have spoken about it what is the problem that you pay, feel is there in the draft privacy bill and you know how bad is the situation uh, because at the end people are dying and you know it's not only about winning elections because now it has slowly if you have seen you spoke about a movie called inception but i'll add another movie called as matrix through the digital ecosystem, now that's coming into our real life. People are losing life because of uh, the our digital uh, identities and all that stuff. Sir. So okay. I wanted to ask yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. about the uh, Privacy Bill that's been
1: drafted. Sir. Okay, so I think uh, two uh, quick uh, or let's start with one uh, response to that. The Privacy Bill, I think the first problem with it is it is not there. We don't have a Privacy Act yet. And uh, keep in mind that in 2017 is when in Puttaswamy, Justice Puttaswamy versus Union of India, uh, you know, the, uh, the bench of the High court, of the Supreme Court declared privacy a fundamental right. And from that point onward, you know, we were supposed to fairly quickly enable a privacy law. Okay, that privacy law, the Privacy Act has not happened yet after all these years. Okay, and it's gone through multiple iterations, it's gone through Uh, various committees. There was uh, the Justice Sri Krishna Committee, which was the first one, which actually did a pretty good job. Today, uh, I think what we have seen happening with it evolving over time is that in the draft forms that we have seen, uh, the Privacy Bill or what is called the Personal Data Protection Bill uh, is not so much about privacy as it is about data, the value of data, who owns the data, who's responsible for the data. And yes, there are some fairly strong penalties and penal clauses which are there for private sector companies along a value chain, you know, of that data. So, for example, you may have the primary data processor, who is, let us say, you know, uh, a Dell or a geo or a Vodafone or somebody who is taking an application in. Now, that application is being processed by, let us say, a data processor and a third party. Then maybe it is being further used by the payments bank of the respective companies which are there. So there are multiple people in the value chain. So there's a very strong set of responsibilities and fiduciary responsibilities which are put. However, none of these really apply to government agencies and law enforcement agencies. So that is one significantly worrying thing that this is about citizen privacy. Then that privacy should apply whichever is the entity which is, you know, Doing the data now, for example, which is which is processing the data or collecting the data. For example, Aadhaar is a case in point, and there have been multiple cases of Aadhaar data which has been uh, either available on mass or which has leaked. You know, and the government may be right in saying that okay, it's not leaked from our servers exactly. It may have leaked from a third party or people who are capturing that data. You know, now the thing is when this leaks, when Aadhaar information on mass leaks. You could argue that okay it's not a very sensitive thing it's your other number and people keep sharing their other number but you can combine that with a lot of other databases and when you combine all this then it becomes a very potent database because you know you can combine it with you know with mobile phone numbers then you can compile it with maybe bank account numbers then if you get a leaked database from a pizza delivery company you combine it with food preferences whether you're vegetarian non-vegetarian and we've seen we can you can weaponize that information because you know you can have mobs in a uh, in a place where there are riots, actually targeting people who are of a particular culinary inclination, and so on. So this is uh, this is actually worrying that there should be very extreme uh, focus on protecting the citizens' privacy. Okay, but there are sweeping exemptions which have been actually afforded to law enforcement agencies, uh, which includes you know things like uh, for. For police, for example, the police can pretty easily seek a lot of data through a simple section 91 CRPC request, okay, and they will simply send that to a service provider, and the service provider could be a restaurant or whatever, and typically they will simply go ahead and give that information. As of now, there is no protection on any of that information, and even when the new bill comes in, uh, in the form that it is, it doesn't really protect the citizen's right to privacy. So I think these are the two things, the overall... The focus is less on privacy and apparently more on the value of data, how it's a sovereign asset, you know, the the country kind of has a right to that data, et cetera, but it doesn't focus so much about, you know, what happens when the data goes or especially if there are government agencies or law enforcement agencies involved. So that's a long answer, but I think that's a set of worries, but I'll just go back to my starting point. I think the biggest issue is we don't have a privacy law yet and that's a f- tremendous concern and we are seeing that concern play out in so many ways such as you know uh, so much of data leaks you know there are phishing uh, attacks there are breaches which happen there are you know entire databases from air india etc so there is no way to really tackle any of that or no easy way because that privacy law uh, is not there right now the second is that we are seeing a lot of other laws in the absence of a privacy law, they are putting in various clauses on privacy. So for example, this e-commerce set of laws, which actually came out, which were under the Consumer Protection Act, which appeared to target Amazon and Flipkart in a number of ways and uh, will potentially maybe hit their business in some way, et cetera. But that has put in various clauses on privacy. Now the question is when the privacy law comes in, what will happen, which will gain precedence? Okay, will that override these clauses on this? Okay, there are a lot of RBI clauses on privacy of data. So you're finding so many things, so many laws and regulations which actually deal with data, uh, which are beginning to put in some clauses on privacy on their own. But that's a bit of a mess. What we really urgently need is a foundational law, even if it is not perfect, and the ability to update and kind of perfect that law over time. Rather than a situation where we don't have any privacy law and we're just pretty much letting each regulator do its own thing.
0: So you spoke about Section 91 being used by the local police stations to fetch out data or any kind of information, right? But I, I believe that you know uh, you're right in your part. But you know when it comes to the
1: local police stations, they can do that without using the Section 91 as well yeah actually you're right uh, so uh, this is a this is a problem because uh, you know law enforcement very often and especially when you go away from the cities into smaller towns and so on we keep hearing from service providers you know the, the police the guy just came down and demanded the data and where is the section 91 crpc request you know and you will get a very <laughs> you might get beaten up for asking that question so this is uh, you're absolutely right that uh, very often data is taken without Uh, the due process of law without even the section 91, which is a very low bar, by the way, you know, I mean, more or less people will, it's it's just, it's almost like a letter written by the local uh, police station and people will often comply with that. But even at least that keeps a record. Very often it's verbal requests and that is really problematic. Okay. And I'm not saying the privacy law will automatically be, uh, you know, a solution and will be complied with for example, there was this draconian law called Section 66A, which was struck down in the Shreya Single Judgment uh, several years ago. And despite that, that that uh, Section 66A is still being used by the police to charge people, to book people. And when they're being booked in their FIS and charge sheets, they're mentioning 66A. Where whereas that law doesn't exist because it's been struck down? Well, what's uh, Section 66A, sir? So I don't know, sec- sorry. So section 66A was a very draconian part of the IT uh, Act, which basically said that if you did anything which offended somebody or which, you know, caused uh, various forms of offence to people uh, by did, I mean, if you actually put something electronically. So for example, if somebody, if I, I posted a tweet or I sent an email to somebody else, and you as even a third party, or maybe even the recipient said, I don't like what you've said there, I find it offensive, okay? And I find it hurtful to some tradition of mine or something like that, okay? Then you can take action under that law and that the results, uh, the penalties are potentially very draconian. So it was uh, grossly abused by law enforcement and police and so on. And since it was a digital uh, related act, uh, let me give you an example. In West Bengal, for example, there was a cartoon published in a newspaper about uh, the chief minister, you know, it mocked the chief minister in some way. So that was fine. It was in the newspaper. Now, a professor in one of the universities there scanned that or took a picture of that cartoon and he sent it. Now, the moment he sent it, that came under the IT Act. Okay? And the government, it, you know, somebody complained to the police, they went and arrested this professor. This professor did not draw that cartoon. He just shared it. Okay. And he was booked under section 66A because somebody was offended. So it was very sweeping. It didn't define what is an offense, how, you know, what particular clauses, does it hurt, uh, you know, religious harmony? Does it hurt something else? We already have very sweeping uh, laws, by the way. We have blasphemy. You know, we have section 295. We have things which which potentially disrupt communal harmony. So if today somebody makes a joke about a cow and he may not mean to offend anybody, but somebody could take offense. And then, you know, very quickly there'll be multiple charges booked. But 66A made that a lot easier. And that was challenged by a young law student called Shreya Singhal uh, in the Supreme Court. And it was struck down along with a number of other modifications which were made to the IT Act.
0: So thank you for the valuable kind of information that you keep providing because uh, uh, from outside it looks like it's very simple but when experts like to start speaking they let us know of how deep the cobweb is you know and how, how deep and how big uh, like the iceberg and you know reference experience like the cobweb there are two things right since you spoke so many sections right I was like finding myself you know in the in the cobweb so uh, I traced down uh you know, and I found out that since uh, Modi government came, so uh, Mukesh Ambani has been speaking a lot about how we need uh, to save our data, uh, the data of our uh, people with our countries. And, you know, so I wanted to ask, you know, what's wrong with the sensitive personal data storage in India, you know, as said by the RGA. And day before yesterday or two days back, I just heard that, you know, uh, the MasterCard has been banned from, you know, uh, operating in India because they have chosen not to store the data
1: In India, so I think uh, that's that's a set of questions, and uh, let me try to answer that in two ways. So one is as far as uh, the data storage in different geographies is concerned. I think one fundamental issue and challenge is that the internet is global. Okay, and so far, you know, uh, up to maybe five or six years ago, you didn't really hear about this thing about data being in a particular location. Because when you logged into Gmail or you logged, you didn't even know where your data was stored. You had no idea, and uh, you know the data could be in the U.S. or it could be in Europe or it could be in Singapore, could be in India. Okay, because the internet is really architected like that. It is structured like that. Uh, it's the the exact mechanics of which is the computer you're connected to, where it is, etc., is kind of it's transparent to you. So you don't really you're not concerned with it because of that a lot of things happened in terms of the architecture of the internet so first of all it became a very robust kind of an architecture where if certain links went down other links would be active and so on okay the second is that when you know where you mentioned mastercard any of the service providers any of the fintech payment uh, let's say uh, say visa or mastercard or paytm especially the global ones okay they work with a global network of services okay and Uh, There are multiple advantages to that. One is they can very quickly scale up and replicate the servers, the processing, the basic algorithms, those may be across a certain. So, for example, the fraud management and processing might be sitting in, say, Europe because the best service providers in that space are there and they are the external parties who are actually handling fraud management. Uh, There could be uh, other parts of the ecosystem which are, and there could be also backup storage in some other location. So we gradually grew to a system which was completely global. Okay. Now some uh, countries began to do their own thing on it. China was a particular case in point. China said, we don't want to be part of a global internet. We'll use that information, but our information, it will be walled. There'll be a big, 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 great wall or firewall or the great firewall. And in fact, they said our citizens also should not be able to freely access the global internet. So it comes to a firewall. So this was China. Gradually, I think other countries and India is especially a case in point said that, okay, this data is very valuable. The data must be stored here. Now they had some good drivers and reasons. One of them was that if there was some information that they wanted, uh, which was basically, let's say there was a crime which they felt that, okay, there were two criminals, they were engaged in some crime, Uh, but the criminals they found also had a Facebook account or they had emails, which is very possible because (laughs) they're all people, right? And they all have Facebook accounts. And then uh, how do they track that person down? So one of the ways they thought is, okay, let's, we should be able to see that, okay, in this Facebook account, somebody is describing some incident, which is which has uh, you know it looks like it's similar to the same crime which has been committed how does this guy know so then they ask Facebook okay we want this guy's information okay or let's say there is an email that they've got and that email is part of this person's so they've got a person and they found an email on his. then they go back to Google and say that we want access to his account okay because we believe there are many more mails which are now that is not very easy that's a pandora's box if the service providers were to do that i mean just imagine if you know you trusted google with your mail and then if you if if let's say a police inspector somewhere had the ability to actually walk up to google and demand information okay or walk up to facebook and So they have to really consider this factor that uh, this could really open up a Pandora's box with many countries potentially abusing it, even if India, you can believe, is benevolent and would not abuse it or so on. But there could be a lot of individual actors who might abuse that information. So that is the challenge. So therefore, the law enforcement people found that it was very difficult to get such information. So there is a treaty which was put into place and there is a global treaty, it's called MLAT, and it actually uh, allows some sort of framework, uh, let's say between India and the US, and it's mainly a lot of it is India and US because many of these companies are actually American. There's Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. So there's a process of information flow, but that is very, it's broken. That process takes a long time. And it's not just for India, Europe, Interpol, they all say the same thing. You know, the process is so bureaucratic and roundabout that it can take two or three years before you get the information you ask. By that time, people may be dead. So therefore, there is a feeling that, okay, if we control the data and the data is sitting here and we control the people and the offices are here, they have addresses here, then we can very quickly demand information and you will get that information. Now that is not entirely and strictly correct, but I will jump forward to the situation. What is happening now? Because with China leading the way, India also saying that, okay, you have to store everything locally, if it is anything to do with our citizens, you're gradually balkanizing the internet, you're breaking it up into parts, okay? You're saying that, okay, all the servers which are serving people in a particular region must be here. And by the way, you can even go further. At one point of time, Uttar Pradesh said, oh, we think all Uttar Pradesh citizens' data should be sitting in Noida. And why should it sit in Delhi or in some other state? So you can actually keep going further and further with this. And it becomes uh, A, counterproductive, a lot of replication of resources, etc. B, it becomes very expensive for the company because they are not able to uh, reuse and deploy resources and things that they have. Three, the, I think the biggest uh, challenges for companies like say Visa or others you know, who deal with credit card and financial information, they do a lot of machine learning and AI to look at uh, fraud related response. And... So there is automated, so for example, if let's say a person takes a, a debit card, okay, and uh, it has been seen that debit cards have been replicated, okay, there, have been, there are scams, there are scanners, and let's say three, four people get copies of that debit card, and they start withdrawing cash, okay, now the system begins to detect that, hey, this cash has been withdrawn here at this ATM, okay, in such and such location. The next one within minutes in another location, but that location is five kilometers away. Okay, now you can put in algorithms which say that faster than this, you should not be able to travel between two locations. Okay, and it takes a decision. Now sometimes decisions are at the edge of what has been decided. That okay, maybe it's possible, but it's not likely. So what should we? In that situation, this problem gets escalated. So you swipe a card. You're waiting for approval. It has got escalated instantly to a human. The human operator looks at the information, takes a call and says, decline, because it looks like it could be fraud. Okay. Now, later you get alert saying that somebody tried to charge your card three or four times. Okay. And then you call up and say that that was not me. My card is with me. I'm not in those five locations where you are. Now the system learns one more thing that the call it took was correct. And the entire machine learning system learns that. And that is instantly replicated worldwide. Next time if somebody tries that same stunt and this could have been in Vienna and now he's trying it in Gurgaon, okay, the system will take this call and prevent that thing happening. This is the global AI, ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, kind of network, which you will interfere with if you completely balkanize that thing. Now you will slow down this process and you will have to wait for that information to be sent as algorithms to another country and they will implement it separately because you don't have the same global processor so this is a problem with this vulcanization that we are seeing today on the internet so
0: thank you for explaining the entire uh, disadvantages of uh, of how centralization of uh, the information that the uh, state governments or the central government is trying to do is going to harm us right so, uh our before you sir i had the opportunity to podcast the technical scientist and you know he was Mr. Sam Petrota, and we spoke in length and you know he explained me a lot in detail about you know centralization uh you know and how the move we are trying to control is going to be very harmful for our, for our country and right and i believe that for the very same reason bitcoin is also working on the very same thing right sir? it's a complete decentralized exchange and that's why it's going to be such successful right So and now that when you were speaking about you know since uh Artificial intelligence finds out how uh, how one criminal, you know, is, suppose he's using his Facebook profile and, you know, uh, similar cases happen, sir. There's a criminal from Mer- uh, of Mered that ran away. He's called the luxurious, uh, he has a taste for luxurious uh, cats and, uh, you know, LV watches and all that stuff. And he ran away from Mirat in a very audacious, uh, stunned by making all the policemen drink in a bar, right? And then few weeks back, that in the newspaper it was found that he was using his Facebook, right? In in Switzerland or somewhere. So if a person is like having, uh, having something to show, right? He will somehow die without the audience, right? And then he was using that. That's that's how I was reminded. So now now that we have been uh, speaking and you know how sensitive data, uh, personal data is harmful for us, you know. Uh, I want to ask because the digital crimes are at the peak, and digital crimes are very, very underreported. For instance, I tell you that I was, I have a friend that you know, I was talking to her on call and she's like, you know, I just saved myself from uh, being, uh, I mean, burgled by somebody because you know they were asking for my account details. I was like what happened, like somebody claiming to be from PNB MetLife, and they call and they were asking credentials, and I said, you know, she's like so far from me, and I said, you know, I felt the same thing. I got two hours before I got a call as well today, right? So this is what's happening to us. But, uh, uh, but sir, are the people who are not on social media, uh, or on digital platforms, or our bad population, which is not using these digital devices, to Uh, are they safe or How can an individual from a middle-class using gadgets save himself from these uh, digital uh, hijacking that's going on?
1: Okay, Uh, tough question to answer because uh, there's no easy answer. So let me try to tackle it in a couple of ways, okay? Uh, The fact is that today you have a situation where you have 650 million or more people who are uh, already on the internet, on mobile devices, on smartphones. Uh, you know, on either 4G or Wi-Fi or so on. Okay, you have 1.2 billion uh, mobile subscriptions, which translates to about maybe 800 to 900 million actual users, let's say 800-850 million. A lot of these people are uh, there what you could describe as lower on either the literacy or the digital literacy level. Or they may be uh, not from the mainstream languages, you know, so maybe English, Hindi, etc., are not their first languages, which is very likely. So, therefore, most of the apps that they're seeing, etc., are not. So, essentially, they're not very familiar with these apps. Okay, they're not familiar with the digital process. Maybe they're low on digital literacy. So, clearly, they are easier game for fishers and hackers and things like that. However, having said that, I must tell you that a lot of the higher value scams which have been happening in terms of, let's say, MSMEs, which is, you know, basically small businesses being uh, targeted uh, through phishing uh, attempts, which are essentially just emails. You know, I mean, there's an email now you are buying from a supplier, you are paying to the supplier, the supplier sends you a mail saying, by the way, my bank account has uh, changed this time because you don't find anything wrong with it but you know you don't realize that either your email has been hacked or it may be a slightly different email address with a with a little change in the actual email okay and then you go ahead and send it to that and you send 5 or 10000 euros uh, to a different account and then you do it one more time and then you know your supplier sends a mail saying by the way you're not paying me and then you now this is very common okay these are obviously not low literacy, bottom of the pyramid people. These are people who are running businesses and they are aware of the issues. So I think one clear thing that's happening is most of the attacks, phishing, uh, all of it which is happening, the mega scams, the bulk of them involve social engineering in some way. Okay. They're not really technical hacks as much in the sense that they're breaking into something and taking over Though Sometimes they may be doing that, but there's social engineering. They're trying to convince you, to do something which causes that harmful situation, one commonest kind of thing is using UPI, which is a terrific payment system, which has which is which makes it very easy to pay. You know, so my my uh, UPI address is very simple. It's you know it's pkr at my bank name, and anybody who knows he can transfer money to me, but he can also make a collect request to me. Okay, he can actually put in that address and say that. I'm requesting for 5,000 rupees for something. Okay, now I have to approve that. Okay, so the commonest scam here is that, you know, you advertise a table or a chair on a site which sells second-hand furniture or whatever it is. Okay, and somebody calls and says, hey, I want to buy that. I like it. And, you know, 5,000 rupees, no problem. I'll pay it. So I'm going to pay you by UPI. What's your UPI address? You give the UPI address. He says, okay, now I'm initiating the payment. You'll get a confirmation code. Okay, and that's like an OTP. So what's the OTP? And you give that OTP. Without realizing, most people don't realize that you actually don't need to give an OTP to receive money. Okay, there is no password required to. So that is a collect request for 5,000, which has happened on you. Which means he has... Then you say that, hey, there's something wrong. Uh, I seem to have got a debit, you know, instead of... He says, oh, oh there's, there's a mistake. Don't worry, I'll just reverse it. Okay. And he does the same thing again. And it's so common. People have gone through three or four of these 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, and then their account is cleared. Or by that time they realize, no, there is a problem here. This guy is not legitimate about board. Now this is a very common scam, okay? Which is something which is on mass because now there are millions of millions of people actually using UPI. This this the same thing you can't do with a card, et cetera, because the structure you don't have a collect request kind of process. You can scam, you can steal a card, but now there's additional factor authentication and so on. So this set of things is a very difficult proposition to handle because one simple solution, not simple really, but people say more education. People have to know that you should never share an OTP. I think these things need to be Uh, backed by technology, which makes it a lot easier because I'll just end with one simple example. When you look at cash, okay, cash is very simple for one reason. Even if a person is illiterate and two people are illiterate, okay, they can recognize cash, banknotes, etc. The second thing is they can recognize giving and receiving. Okay, I give you money. There is no confusion. You take money. Nobody will get confused about that. The moment you're on an app, and you know, you have this potential con- confusion between debit and credit. Okay, the guy is saying, I'm giving you 5,000, you s- say, okay. Okay, and then actually he's taking. Okay, that's one additional layer of complexity which is come in. And you can use technology actually. For example, you can have standardized user interfaces. You can have standardized systems which uh, for example, uh, use the color green when you are receiving money. But when you're paying it the color is red and there is a buzz and there's a vibration. Okay. These kind of things can be done. Okay. So these are technology interventions. Because the other part of it, which is to educate every user, that is very, very tough. Because of all these examples I've given you where very well educated PhD users, you know, are scammed and lose a lot of money. So it's not just the education, it is a mix of things along with the education which is required. So the
0: example you gave about you know somebody selling their stuff uh, i don't know if you're aware or not arvind kj daughter was also pawned in the similar way she had put up her sofa you know and you know she was you know on the same way i read it on the net somewhere yeah. and you know uh-huh. sir uh, thank you for telling us these beautiful examples and i hope it helps the user so there's some similar and some very interesting that i want to ask right when it comes to crypto, sir, because you know they say that they are using blockchain technology. You know, I just wanted to ask, sir, since you are an expert, uh, how is what is blockchain technology, and how can that be used into our uh, day-to-day la- uh, data uh, and all that stuff? Because they are saying that blockchain is the future, and that's not hackable. Uh, Bitcoin has not been hacked since 2008, and you know it's very
1: tough, sir. Uh, so can you give your insights on this, sir? Okay, so it's not very easy to uh, explain beyond, uh, you know, the fact that uh, blockchain technologies use a distributed ledger, uh, which essentially means that, so, uh, okay, let's take an example. In normal payments or money transfers or even document transfers, okay, so you have to submit a document. The typical thing is there is an intermediary. And that intermediary handles whether it could be a, it's a bank or a network or a, you know, card company or Paytm or somebody which handles the fact that it manages these wallets that you may have. And you as a user, if I have to give money, it actually goes via Paytm and it goes to you in with a distributed ledger. Okay, there is and using blockchain technology, you actually bypass that intermediary. And you have all the records of this kept in a distributed form uh, across many, many, many different blocks. Okay. And when I pay you, then that entire, that blockchain is updated. Okay. So there is no central party, which is saying, yes, this is okay, or no, this is not okay. okay. Therefore, it kind of bypasses that central authority. And that is also a problem. So, and that's a problem, for example, for India, which has actually banned transactions in in uh, Bitcoin and other blockchain-based currencies. Okay, because it bypasses the central authority, it doesn't the central authority, which would be RBI and you know other government agencies, etc. They have no visibility into money flow. So anti-money laundering, and so there'd be concerns that, you know, uh, money laundering could utilize uh, systems like this because otherwise if i pay you digitally in in any other way in india there is a record and that record will ultimately get into what is called a KYC seed or a know your customer certified bank account okay but using blockchain i bypass that now there is a way out of that which is again using blockchain technologies what is called a central bank digital currency or a fiat currency. So that is something that the RBI is also exploring, which is a kind of a digital version of the rupee, where similar things would happen, you would not be using a bank. I
0: like okay. USDT.
1: Sorry? Like USDT. Uh, USDT? USDT, sir. Uh, I mean, that's the term in Bitcoin. Sir. I mean, oh, the yeah, cryptocurrency yeah, currency, yeah. sir. Right. right. OK. Yeah. So uh, the thing is, there are several uh, central bank digital currencies, which, uh, you know, which have happened elsewhere in the world. Ethiopia, uh, sorry, um, uh, Estonia. Uh, Estonia has been really ahead of the curve in a lot of digital areas and the CBDC or the central bank digital currency has been one. Sweden has been looking at a e-kroner, a digital kroner. India is considering... Uh, not very advanced talks yet, but is considering having a digital rupee. So that digital rupee, it would work, it would use blockchain. You would not have to transact via a bank. You could actually do peer-to-peer transactions. The only difference is RBI would have visibility into it. Second is unlike Bitcoin, which can be mined by a certain very elaborate process, which is very energy intensive and very compute resource intensive. Okay, it can be mined by third parties. This would not. Okay, now the tremendous advantage, uh, how is it different from the regular money? The regular money is actually, it is it is backed by actual money currency, which is there, which is typically backed by gold. Okay, but in the case of this, you know, this would be, uh, the, these wouldn't be notes which have been printed. They wouldn't be currency notes. This would be in a blockchain where the ledger is actually managed by the Reserve Bank of India. And if you cannot... Uh, counterfeit it, because if you try to manipulate it, the blockchain is changed. So unlike in the other digital systems, or unlike in uh, currency notes where you can use sophisticated systems to replicate and counterfeit the currency notes, or you can you can hack into a bank and you know you can actually uh, transfer money from one account into another and so on. In the case of the blockchain, you have very strong control over that in a centralized blockchain. So. The, the direction that India is going into is currently this, that we may not be allowing uh, blockchain-based distributed ledger currencies at all, like Bitcoin. So essentially, Bitcoin may be continue, may continue to be banned and it has effectively had a ban, uh, which is unfortunate in certain ways, but we can come to that later. And instead, we go into the central bank digital currency or a e-Rupee or a digital rupee. Now, I'll just end with this. The, I think one reason this is unfortunate is because you can look at Bitcoin as a currency. And if you do that, you know that currency is like, for example, uh, dollar is a currency. Now, is the dollar banned in India? Uh, it is in the sense that you can't go to the Merkel market and buy in dollars, right? But you can trade in dollars and certain restricted places like hotels, etc., you may be able to pay in dollars. So that would actually be a reasonable approach to take, that if you treat it as a foreign currency, and there is a conversion between Bitcoin and rupee, etc. So you're able to trade in the, with the same controls that you can trade in rupees, you can do forex trading. But you can't go and buy something, you can't go to the shop and say, okay, I'll buy milk and I'll pay you in Bitcoin, just like you can't pay in dollars. So that would have been a reasonable thing. Uh, The reason why this is unfortunate is that there is a lot of very good work being done by startups and others, you know, who are working on these technologies and they are suddenly at a very loose end. Investors who have invested in this are at a loose end because it's looking like India may ban uh, not just Bitcoin, but all cryptocurrencies. Sir, I agree with your views and, you know, I'm sure that
0: India is working in this direction, right? But the... I'm like starting this, I feel that, you know, the more they ban it, the higher it's skyrocket. That's that's how that crypto works, if I'm not wrong. Sir, uh, coming to the question and the theme of our uh, podcast, I feel that I wanted to know that there are two aspects of technology. One is the thing that's being misused. The other is the advantages. You know, technology is taking a leap, you know, for a mankind, right? Like Neil Armstrong said when he went to the moon. So I wanted to ask now that we are considering options of holding elections uh, digitally over uh, over mobile phones, like voting mobile phones, that will save us a lot of resources and all that stuff. So, But since I wanted to ask, right, because uh, machines can be managed, right? Do you think that, you know, the EVM machines, uh, I, I know it's a controversial, sir, and it's, you're not a government, but as an opinion of an expert, or of a technology speaker and writer, sir, what are your views when uh, certain elements of the society or individuals of the society say that, you know, the EVM
1: uh, can be hacked or not hacked. So. so good question. I think this is something we've been grappling in for a long time and not just us globally, because uh, you, uh, you realize, I mean, India has been ahead of the curve in terms of EVM usage and introduction for a long time. The US uh, did not do EVMs and even now they allow paper voting or paper ballot. And there is a reason for that. It's not as if India has magic technology, which the U.S. doesn't have access to or something like that. The reason is, yes, machines can be uh, intercepted. They can be tweaked. So a lot of it is based not on the security of the technology, because finally, you know, if you have unrestricted access to a particular machine, just like, you know, a bank may be totally secure. But if somebody knows all your login details, etc., they can get into your bank account and then do certain things and there's access to second-factor authentication, your, your OTP. So once you have the access, you can actually uh, do quite a quite a bit of uh, uh, stuff with it. So uh, from that point of view, uh, I'm sorry, I just have to just remind me what is the subject that we were talking about? So we were
0: talking that, we, we are talking on can uh, EVM machines be hacked? Right. So on the, uh,
1: the the question is as far as the EVM uh, part is concerned, okay. Uh, therefore, it is not so much about the uh, intrinsic security of the chip, but the access. In the examples I gave, uh, the trouble is it depends entirely on the the entire uh, end-to-end security chain and the the you know the uh, chain of confidence, as it were, for that EVM machine. You know who has access to it. So there's a huge amount of physical security, which is actually involved in ensuring that that chain of, you know, that control, it's just like evidence, you know, chain of evidence. Okay. If you have evidence, which is picked up, which is very sensitive in a crime, you have to ensure that the chain of evidence and, you know, at no point does it go out of, uh, you know, control, out of reach by the same token here, you do have that issue with uh, EVMs potentially. Okay, now what's the solution to that? One answer which has been, uh, which has been come up with uh, is that you use the uh, a paper printout, which is essentially, it gives you visibility into if you vote for X party, you should be able to actually see that little printout uh, that, yes, it's the same one which is there, and it maintains a record. So if there is a discrepancy or if there is a contest or if somebody says this is this place is out of whack because here, you know, people are saying they voted for X, but somebody else won, then they can actually go back to uh, the paper record. Now that I think has not worked very well for I think several reasons. One is that people are not really, they've not been trained, educated, etc. to look at what is happening on the paper record there are some people who said we voted for something but you know the paper record seems to be something else now it could be that there it's a parallax error they're looking at it this way is the previous one which is showing this way or whatever okay so to cut a long story short the evm uh, arena is is a tough one today i think there are technologies including blockchain etc which could potentially allow uh, you know voting through a digital access terminal etc but right now given the level of technology we have it is completely dependent on the physical security chain uh, for that evm and that i think is difficult to uh, i mean i certainly don't have the full confidence in that because you know evms have been found in random places and people's cars and you know things like that i actually sorry i agree
0: with you sir because you know a lot of reporting have been done where the EVMs have been found it various leaders stars and all that stuff you know. and if if you're saying that you know it has to be made a certain after seeing the physical security then i think that you know the government is already ruling uh, i mean uh, how can they be the custodian of the uh machine themselves right so there's uh, now that uh, i'm coming to the computing part of this beautiful session in which you are providing insights upon the world of technology and data and democracy that i am naming this uh chapter and so this session with you so there, before moving on to the topic that's very close to the heart of all the people be- before, because, because I was reading about you and I found out the green home technology that you know uh, you are the first green home, uh, uh, that's in Delhi, right? So, I thought, I in my mind thought that you know, uh, when I'll be talking to you, uh, your house might be having hanging plants behind you, and the curtains might be like those tree creepers because that's the first green home that I was And, you know, inside of lights, there might be some uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, sunlight storage or I mean, I I mean, uh, those that there have been in Asian systems. Right. So how is your home like the uh, I mean,
1: tell us something about your eco uh, greenhouse, the first greenhouse of Africa. Okay, so um, this was the first uh, certified green home in the country uh, when it got certified in 2013-14 before this you possibly had uh, you know you had homes which people did maybe greener things and and better things they've been homes which have been built from earth uh, from you know a lot of traditional techniques but since you didn't really have a certification which applied to them now what is a certification for quite some time for you know well over a decade before that you had large buildings which could be certified and they're certified by two or three systems. The global system is uh, by the USGBC, the US United States Green Building Council, and they have a rating system called LEED. Okay, uh, so L E E D, and in that LEED system, you can get different ratings up to platinum. So you know there'll be bronze, silver, gold, platinum, etc. Uh, all this, uh, and okay, so let me cover the other systems. So there are a couple of others, but the predominant one in India, apart from the USGBC LEED, is Terry's Griha system. So both of these systems were available for large buildings. Now, what did they they rate? How do you rate these? You look at a whole bunch of parameters, you know, which could be 25, 30, 40 different parameters, which include, for example, the material that the building is made from. Okay. It should be low carbon footprint. Okay. So I'll come to this later, but my house doesn't have bricks. It doesn't use regular bricks. It uses alternate material. Okay. Or the electrical systems, the electrical system should be uh, energy star rated. Here we have a BEE Bureau of Energy Efficiency Energy Rating System. So, you know, uh, one to five stars. So in my home, all electrical equipment is a five star rated. Okay. So when you add up all these scores, uh, you end up with a final score and which gives you again, a rating from which could be uh, bronze, uh, you know, bronze, silver, gold, platinum, or in the terry system, one, two, three, four, five star. So my house was rated a five star, and that comes from these 20 odd parameters. So for example, the material is an alternate material, which is fly ash derived, and it is called autoclaved aerated concrete. It's a block which looks like concrete, but it's very light. And it's very light because it uses fly ash and a certain technology with some cement as binder, aluminium as catalyst, And it creates a foam and sets like a foam. Okay, now this is like... Is it durable and strong? I'm sorry? Is it durable and strong as well? Yes, it's it's very durable and strong. It has uh, the same uh, both machinable and earthquake characteristics, uh, earthquake resistance. Uh, And keep in mind one more thing that, you know, in a house, your walls are actually not the ultimate load-bearing components today in modern buildings. They are beams, they're RCC beams. So the RCC beams are still made of RCC. Okay. Uh, The walls, however, what happens is when you use this material, my house is actually lighter, it's about 40% lighter than a regular house. So you actually use less material even in the RCC beams, because you're holding up a lighter. And if it is lighter and has the same strength, then it's effectively stronger. So for example, you have better earthquake resistance and so on and the final thing is that this kind of material because it you know it sets as a foam it has a certain amount of air which is what makes it light it's also very good in terms of thermal insulation uh, so it's a better insulator than the normal concrete which is there so this is one example there are there's a lot of material reuse which has happened old material which has been reused in the house the electricals are like i said they're five star rated there's daylight which is used even my basement is naturally lit So uh, there's particular techniques of, you know, long windows and guiding passages for light so that the basement actually is naturally lit. And in the daytime, you don't need, uh, you know, artificial lights there. If you do use artificial lights, it's all five-star rated. It's LED only. There are motion sensors everywhere with switch on and switch off lights. So there's a bunch of these things which together uh, give you this uh, ability to uh, basically measure and rate whether a building lives up to a certain score in terms of both its energy consumption, its carbon footprint, and all of that. So all this was there for large buildings there. This was the first small building, a home for which Terry actually was really good about it. Terry evolved and adapted the system to make it suitable for homes and also a little cheaper in terms of the whole rating process and all of that. Sir, actually, uh...
0: The walls of my house are hearing and they are feeling possessive about your
1: house. <laughs> well, so, you know, I think one thing there is that uh, while building from the ground up is um, is of course something you have to plan at the, at the building level. You can't break down the house and uh, you can break down the house, but you can't change that. But there are many things you can do in a house to actually uh, make it greener, including a green rating. So if you look at the 20 odd parameters of the swagriya system, which is there for homes, okay, the material, you can't do anything. Your walls are whatever they are, but you can change the electricals gradually. If you have anything which is subpar, subpar meaning it's not LED. It's not the most efficient. It may be CFLs. It may be older tube lights, or it may even be incandescents. That's the first thing you gradually, and that's what, you know, I, I, uh, I have a place in Gurgaon in, in a condominium complex where everything was traditional tube lights. Gradually, I worked on that and we all had support of the residents and all, and we changed all of them to LED lights. And that drastically dropped the power consumption. Okay. It also reduces the power required for backup. So if you happen to stay in a city where there are power failures, then you can use a smaller inverter to actually back up the entire house because everything is energy efficient enough for the backup to last much longer which is also an advantage. So there are some things in this, which are basically, you know, things which will benefit the environment, but a lot of people might ask, but what is in it for me? Okay, but there are some things where you actually gain and natural light is another one, a well-designed green home. In fact, a well-designed green building, if you go into a large building. So for example, the Rajiv Gandhi International Airport in Hyderabad is a, I think three or four star griha You'll see a lot of natural light. And that's true now in a lot of, lot of large airport buildings also. So natural light, lower electricity consumption, lower water consumption, the water uh, flow, the entire water flow, the devices, the fixtures, they are low flow, very, very low flow. The flushes and WC's season cisterns, instead of using six liters or eight liters of water, they use three and four liters of water, you know? So ultimately there are uh, concrete tangible benefits also. And there is of course uh, the environmental impact which you're helping reduce. Sir, I am so bewildered to know about the
0: efforts that you have put into. You know, one side you are promoting technology and speaking about technology. There's like a, a there's like a, a very opposite side to you, and and the other thing is the responsible responsibility about environment that you have taken upon yourself, right? So there's one thing that I wanted to ask, right? Because since our theme is technology, and I want to conclude the session with this thing, right? Because you know, as much as I may ask, I may never know about the subject of technology and data and democracy more than you, right, So, uh, so I wanted to ask, you know, what a lot of ministries fail is in, you know, they don't research and plan for the future. And, you know, they don't have a research and analysis and they're not very predictive about the future, Like, right? So I just want to ask yourself, of oh, the two things, that what we know and what we don't know, That what we don't know. So tell us something about data and democracy that we don't know, we should know. End
1: the session, though? About data and democracy, I think it's really uh, I would uh, say it is the understanding that your data uh, is is valuable and it can be used in ways that you would never imagine. And I think the Cambridge Analytica thing gave us one insight into that: that you know, just answering questions, you know, simple questions and quizzes, how can that be added and combined and concatenated with your profile information? to get devastating kind of power over a democracy okay or you say that okay i i you know i don't think so much about privacy i have nothing to hide you know but people don't realize that the data that uh, you know they are sort of leaving a trail off in the ecosystem including you know motion sensors and so on okay that data can be really utilized and that's one of the reasons many countries have actually taken a call on not doing certain things For example, automated meter reading. Okay, you can electronically and instantly read meters which have remote readable capability. But, you know, in Germany and in Japan and a couple of, uh, Germany especially, very concerned about privacy. uh, You know, you have the ability to actually walk into an area and do a quick scan if you are able to access that system, quickly to scan to see which are the houses which are consuming power and which are not. Okay. And at night, for example, if you find that, okay, these 14 houses are not consuming any power, you instantly have a map of which are empty houses there. Okay. And you can go in and do things. Uh, Data, uh, you know, uh, the government is talking about non-personal data and the utilization of that, but a simple food delivery app, okay, which delivers food to households, you know, and here, for example, if you do a mapping from that data, Even without personal data, you just know that, okay, in this area, there is, for example, the predominance of non-vegetarian or even maybe beef dishes, if if that applies in that part of the country, you can misuse that information if you access it. So this is what I would really say that, you know, the, uh, the power of data is something that is not visible to us as most individuals. And therefore, privacy is something that's also not valued enough by people. Okay, it's not just about saying that, oh, I trust him, so I will trust him with my password, etc. But what you have to recognize is that the data that you are generating is enormously powerful. And unfortunately, we don't have a way to educate everybody out there. So we have to put in a framework in place. So I think it's in the interest of all people who are, uh, who are educated and aware of things, really push for a privacy law for this data. Because as a citizen, your fundamental rights are affected and your constitutional rights are affected if your data is not protected.
0: Uh, sir, so I think you make a valid point into this. You know, I am feeling uh, on a scale of one to 10 of the way I came into this meeting was at a four and I'm leaving uh, enlightened, technologically enlightened at a scale of eight after after having spoken to you, sir. And of course, someday I would surely want to come and have a look at your house and you know, and because these things need to spread, and the light that you're spreading, and I just cannot tell you, sir, that how thankful I am for giving your uh, valuable time to me, sir. And you have been very kind since I've been speaking. Uh, been, since I've been speaking you, uh, speaking to you, and requesting you, sir, please give me your time, right? Though you have been very busy, but
1: sir, thank you very much once again for giving your uh, giving your valuable time. Sure, Doctor Mang, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope it was helpful and useful, and look forward to connecting with you again sometime.
0: Thank you so much.